And let's read, although we're going to look at 12 through 25, let's read verses 18 through 22 in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, it's a lake, but they called it a sea. That's important to know. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and we've seen him before, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's professional fishermen. They're not fishing for fun. They're fishing to feed the children. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, I remember hearing that story as a little kid. I thought that's the first time these guys had ever seen Jesus. And I've heard pre- people preaching this as a gospel call to these guys. Neither one of those things is true, and you need to understand that. And hopefully you'll see that as we go through this. They were waiting for him to come and call them to this particular ministry full-time. What a privilege to be walking around with Jesus. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John. John's the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. His brother, that is James's brother, Peter, James, and John are the three closest disciples. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets after a night of fishing. This is probably early in the morning. And he called them, same kind of call, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left the boat. We're going to see a boat like the one they may have been in, in Israel. It was uh, discovered in 1986, and you'll see a film how they got that out of the sludge in one piece, and they actually have that boat on display at a museum we'll go to in Israel next May. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. One of the little sayings I've got that I occasionally will say from time to time, is I'll look at somebody, usually randomly, and the more random it is, hey, Kitty, what what are you doing here? (laughs) She came into town, didn't tell me. Um, You know, I just, and I do this at Cameron sometimes, the first couple of weeks, and it it throws them for a loop, you know, but I'll be in the middle of something else, and I'll just stop and randomly look at one person, and who needs some encouragement? David. Yeah, I'll look at somebody like David, and I'll say, hey, David, you're special, and you're important. And they're going, why why is he saying that about that one guy? But so is everybody else, so try to get over it. Otherwise, you'll be a very selfish, self-absorbed person. Well, I'm going to have to uh, modify that a little bit based on Matthew 14, verses 12 through 25, at least for today. And I'm going to say, use David again as a target. Uh, David, you're special and you're important. But the capital D disciples, who would become capital A apostles, are more strategic spiritually than David Bearden or Chuck Swindoll or James Mitchell or Brad McCoy or Billy Graham or anybody else other than the apostles. They are a unique breed of cat and had a unique foundational ministry. So we're going to think about what that means and what it doesn't mean today as we continue our Life of Christ A through Z. We come to letter L, which stands for location lateraled. We're moving... Jesus' base of operation from Capernaum, or from Nazareth to Capernaum, I should say. So we're in a fishing village now and not a carpenter shop anymore as we see the great Galilean ministry in its full force. But before we look at our passage, let's uh, pray for our teachability, our troops, our uh, firefighters, and our peace officers. And Murray, uh, so far so good, OSU? 
Are you going to come back to Cameron? Too late? You haven't decided yet? Okay, better hang in there. I'm sure you're fine. But uh, would you listen in prayer in that direction? Uh, you know what? I was hoping Gene was going to be in here for this, but I was looking at some old pictures, and that's a picture of Joe McCormick during one of his tours in Afghanistan. And many years ago, I'm going to make sure he sees this. He's okay with this, I'm sure. Uh, many years ago, we did a top seven list trying to warm up your capacity for abstract thought before we dive into the scripture. And I said, uh, Joe McCormick was a man of many nicknames. And I remember when he went through basic, he said it really wasn't as hard as he thought it was going to be. And I realize now the reason that he thought basic training was easy was because he had a much more difficult uh, drill instructor to answer to before he enlisted in the Army, and that would be me. And that's a picture that he's probably forgotten about, but I'm going to show it to him. That's him uh, in Puebla, Mexico, in front of Iglesia Batista Jerusalén in uh, Puebla, Mexico, the Chuck Titus on the right, and there's uh, Joe's original drill instructor on the left. <laughs> but this is top seven nicknames for Jumpin' Joe. He He jumped out of airplanes and killed bad guys, so... I called him Jumpin' Joe McCormick. Here are the top seven nicknames. Number seven, the world's best-looking camouflage model. And he did look good in the uniform, didn't he? Our favorite man in Afghanistan. A little rhyming going. These aren't laugh-out-loud funny, by the way. The USA's number one weapon in the war against terrorism. The man of 1,000 push-ups. Osama bin Laden's biggest nightmare. Southwest Foods, that's his uncle's business, man of the decade, and then uh, the one that really got the attention was the number one nickname for Jumpin' Joe McCormick was and is the only person in the world who is cooler and tougher than these two super cool, super tough dudes. <laughs> and uh, James will have to explain that picture to you later. I, I think that was either to Puebla or coming back home from Puebla. Maybe they ate something that they didn't agree with them. Um, Listen, on the back table, there is a, uh, a clipboard, and because some of you will forget, uh, I want to pass it around. Uh, thanks to the goodness of Wendy Powers' heart, we're in the process of updating our church directory, and it's going to, uh, in its final form, be digital, and we'll send it to you on email, and also hard copies. So even if you've been here from day one, like Dale, Check your uh, information. Make sure it's right. Sometimes we don't have your wife's email or your husband's phone number. Uh, check it for omissions or mistakes. And then just pass it all the way back this section. Then it's going to go there. Then it's going to go there. Then it's going to go there. If I don't say this, it ends up in the under a seat in the middle, you know. Then it's going to go all the way back. So Jack or Deborah will be the last ones to deal with it. And when you're done, just put it on that back table, that piece of furniture, okay? And I uh, thought for every, thought about everything. I even put a writing utensil there. So try to listen while you're filling that out. <laughs> but that will really help us. Okay, we're going to look at uh, several verses, but they break down into, into three pieces. We're going to see Nazareth's loss is Capernaum's gain. Jesus moves his base from the carpenter shop area to a fishing village. That's why he keeps bumping into fishermen, right? And uh, the great Galilean ministry hits full speed. That's verses 12 through 17. Then we're going to see, uh, previewing my main points here, right, guys, like you do in speech. Uh, then Jesus, in verses 18 through 22, will call specific believers to discipleship, capital D, in view of eventually becoming apostles, very unique, foundational kind of people. 
And then we'll see a general description, verses 23 through 25, of the great Galilean ministry. We're not going to walk all the way through the life of Christ today, A through Z, but we're at letter L, stands for location lateral. And these are real events that took place in real pla- real places with real people. And last week, look at the north part of that map. There's there's Nazareth, right? This area is called Galilee. That area is called Judea. Judea's got cities like Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Galilee has cities like Capernaum and Nazareth, right? And last week we saw letter K. What's that stand for? Ken kick out his extended family and relatives reject him when he reads uh, Isaiah 61, verse 1, in the synagogue, which says, Peg, uh, the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he reads that passage in Hebrew, and then he sits down on a high stool in front to explain the passage, and he says, today that passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's, he's claiming to be the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 53, 49, 42. It's a theme throughout Isaiah. And what they do? They say, man, what a blessing. They have the Messiah here. They said, who do you think you are? You're just a carpenter. You know? So his kin kick him out. They attempt to kill him, but he gets away. So now we're moving about 18 miles away from uh, the plain, the top part of the plain of Megiddo to the uh, Gennesaret Valley, a city of, called Capernaum. Capernaum means the village of Nahum. Not the name that's a prophet, however, another guy named Nam. And that's where we are. So we're right there. See that? See what L coming up? Uh, we're moving the base of operation for the rest of Jesus' ministry until his last final trip to Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John, this is John the Baptist, but John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist. He was a Presbyterian, right? Right, Scott? No, he, he wasn't even a Presbyterian. It's better than that. John was the baptizing Jewish prophet prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi who would be on the ground and prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. So when John had been arrested by Herod Agrippa, Jesus withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. Now we know from Luke, he left Nazareth after he preached in Nazareth, but Matthew doesn't tell you that, not because he's unaware of it or doesn't want you to know about it, it doesn't fit his purposes for writing this gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus came and settled in Capernaum, so much so that just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 9, Jesus, who had been born in Bethlehem, reared in Nazareth, um, became the adopted homeboy of Capernaum, because in Matthew 9-1, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, and he's talking about Capernaum there. So this is a permanent change of station, uh, you know, PCS, as they say in the military, uh, which is by the sea, not the Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Gennesaret, one body of water, one lake, uh, three different names. Uh, it's in a bowl. It's 650 feet below sea level. Uh, surrounded by higher ground, so when you get on that boat and go across there, you kind of feel like people are watching you because you're you're looking up at different slopes. But then you'll notice as you go down, as you go south from the Sea of Galilee, which is 650 feet below sea level, uh, as that water's running down here, is it going downhill or uphill? It's going downhill. And when you get to the sea, uh, the Salt Sea or the sea, Dead Sea, you're 1,200 feet below sea level. That's the lowest place on the surface of planet Earth. Uh, 
And I hate to tell you this, but I am so old. When I was born, the Dead Sea was only sick. Yeah. But we will see the Dead Sea uh, if we make the, the trip. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so he comes to Capernaum, which is by the sea, and then using Old Testament designation, this city is not referred to in the Old Testament, you know, in the region between Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtali in the division of the 12 tribes back in the Old Testament. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, there are about 300,000 people living in Galilee, according to historians at this point, and about a third of them or more were Gentiles. So you're Jesus, uh, who's the Messiah of the Jews, is also the Savior of the world, as we'll see. His ministry is going to reach um, Syria in this passage. By the way, the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, verse 16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death upon them a light dawn. Now, in your notes there, I just copied and pasted the New American Standard um, translation for your access, and you notice, notice starting in verse 15, everything's in caps and a slightly different font. That's the New American Standard's way of telling Wendy this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. Almost all of your English Bibles will do something with direct quotations, but different ones do different things. There's no one set uh, convention. So some of them will have bold print telling you that's an Old Testament passage. In this case, it's all caps, a slightly different font, that kind of thing. So even this is part of the sovereign purpose of God. This isn't a surprise. This isn't a mistake. Uh, Jesus is right on schedule right where he needs to be. But I want you to notice something just in passing. As you look back at verse 12, or verse 11, I should say, Matthew 4.11, then Satan left him, and behold, the angels came to minister him. That's the last verse in what we call E. Angels announced the pregnancies of John the Baptist, supernormal, and Jesus, supernatural. B, birth in Bethlehem. C, carpentry career. D, dove descends at the dunking, the, the baptism, right, where the righteousness of Christ is declared. What does E stand for? Enemy entices the temptations, right, of the last Adam by Satan. So, the last thing Matthew has told you about is what we would call letter E, the enticement, enemy enticements, the temptations. When you get to verse 12, we have jumped over F, first followers, great guests at the wedding feast, Jesus does the first miracle, harsh house cleaning, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and rejects the whole debauched, corrupt expression of Judaism as presided over by the Sanhedrin at that point in the temple. I, incredible interview in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, J, Jive at Jacob's well, the woman at Jacob's well, and then K, what we looked at last week in Luke. So F, G, H, I, and J, those events described by John are not mentioned by Matthew, and they take place. See that little space between the end of verse 11 in your Bible there, Dustin, and verse 12? In that little space, a lot of stuff's happening. You're talking about nine months, probably, of activity, and then... And John tells you about F, G, H, I, and J. And then Luke tells you the details of K. And now we're in letter L, right? So how does that work? Well, it works like this. Each of the human authors, Luke tells you at the very first of his uh, gospel, he says, paraphrase, a lot of people have written about the life of Christ, and he probably has Matthew and Mark in front of him when he writes it. And there are also other non-canonical, non-inspired accounts people would have written, and plus the oral history. 
But he says, lots of other people have written about this, but I have sat, it, sat down, I want to write this in logical order for you, Theophilus, as a discipleship manual, right? So Luke tells you he's an active composer, albeit inspired by the Spirit, uh, at the, and that's the beginning of Gospel of Luke. At the end of the Gospel of John, John says, many other signs Jesus also performed that are not written in this book. So Seth, he's not, I'm not trying to write a 21st century analytical comprehensive biography. I'm writing something with a purpose. Many other signs Jesus also did. He emphasized seven plus the resurrection that aren't written in this book. But these are written, I'm including these, because I'm writing this so you will believe Jesus is the Christ, you'll trust in him as Savior, and believing you have life in his name. So these guys are writing purposely, and when they leave something out, it's not because they don't know about it necessarily, or they don't want you to know about it. They only choose, they're purpose-driven writers. They're writing, including stuff, they're not making anything up, but they only include what first furthers their purpose. This is one reason we have four Gospels. Uh, I've, I've heard a lot of young Christians ask the question, why do we have four Gospels, not one Gospel? And I've heard a lot of bad answers to that question. The answer is, Matthew was written primarily, initially, to the Jewish mind as a disciple of uh, disciple manual, discipleship manual, and an apologetic manual for Jewish believers. And it teaches and emphasizes throughout, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. What, what's one of the four Gospels do you think emphasizes Old Testament fulfillment? Matthew, because he's writing it initially, it's for anyone, but specifically for Jewish audience, new believers that are getting all these strange looks by their family and friends, they actually believe Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew emphasizes Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He was Jewish through and through, but he's also the Savior of the world. Mark says Jesus, to the Roman mindset, is the greatest servant of all kind of all time. Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom, right? He is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah data about the servant of the Lord. But Mark has very little references to the Old Testament because he's writing to the Roman mindset saying unless you humble yourself like a little child and let Jesus save you and try to try to try to earn it yourself uh, you're never going to get there he's the Jew, he's the servant of the lord and the savior of the world luke written to theophilus a greek who's got a high position in the roman government emphasizes the medical doctor jesus is the perfect human being albeit the god man and he's the savior of the world and then john emphasizes jesus is god in the flesh the god man and the Savior of the world. So this is called literary compression, where you leave out details that don't further your overall purpose, um, and uh, you're not trying to hide those events or uh, keep them from being known, and they're assuming you probably read the other Gospels too in most cases, right? So uh, this is one reason we've got four Gospels, and in verse 12 we're jumping nine months, we're jumping over F-G-H-I-J-K, this is the value of life of Christ A through Z. You can now actually think through big chunks of the life of Christ and see how they fit together. And if you know the life of Christ A through Z, when you go from verse 11 in Matthew 4 to verse 12, you can say, hey, he just took a big jump. We've done a whole lot of living. The Lord has done a whole lot of living between the end of verse 11 beginning of verse 12. Now let me tell you, some people like Richard Dawkins, the God delusion, the world's most famous atheist who's actually a very hard agnostic, he doesn't know stuff like that. He'll see gaps like that and say, hey, Matthew didn't want you to know that Jesus got kicked out of, out of Nazareth. Yeah, he didn't care. He's just not emphasizing that. You can read that in Luke. 
So, boom, you just become a better Bible reader. Just uh, And there is a tip jar in the back just for stuff like that. Uh, look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And he's getting his message out as widely as possible. you got 300,000 people in Galilee, about 200 cities. Most of them are small. Uh, a lot of people don't live in the cities. They live in little little groups of family in uh, kind of tribal areas. Say, And he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? Now let's talk about repentance. Uh, there are two Greek words that can be translated repentance. One is metamelamai. It appears one and only one time in the New Testament. You find it in Matthew 27. You know the only person who metamelamizes. Metamelamai means to feel sorry. It's an emotional term. You know, the only person who metamelamizes in the New Testament? Judas Iscariot. When the dust settled, he really, really felt bad about what he did. But he did not come to faith before, during, or after he sold Jesus down the river. And that's the only person who's told, told, we're told metamelamized. Uh, the other word, metanaeo, or metanoia, the noun form, uh, meta means change, metamorphosis, a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. Noeo means to think. Noose, the noun form, not like the noose you use to hang somebody, but noose is where you said the word means uh, uh, think, right? Or mind, mind that thinks. So meta, metanaeo means to change your mind, to change your thinking. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Nobody trusts Christ as Savior until they've changed their thinking. In fact, the constable says you could translate this, think again. But the lexicon says to change your thinking. You've got to change your... This is The culture here, the Jewish culture, most of these people have been told, because you've got a physical line back to Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, if you can be a good enough obeyer of the law, you can earn your way to heaven. That's what they're taught. That's what they're trying to do. They need to repent. They need to change their mind about their sin. They've got it. Righteousness, they can't crank it out good enough to go to heaven based on trying to keep the law. And judgment, it's coming. They've got a one-on-one moral reckoning with God. So this is not calling for a certain level of emotion. That's a whole different word. It's calling about changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and the Savior. And when you look at the way this is used, especially in the book of Acts, I know we're in, in the Gospels, it's almost like Luke is going out of his way to tell you to metanaeo, to change your mind about your sin, self, and Savior, is the same thing, or another way to describe pistuo, which is to believe in Christ for salvation. Let me show you what I mean. Acts 2.38, which I know Stan and Ginny are interested in for other reasons. Peter says, repent, metanaeo, for the forgiveness of your sins. Just like here Jesus says, repent, kingdom of heaven is at hand. But a few verses later, when Luke, who's the author of Acts, describes the people that responded to the call to repent, look at how he describes them. All those who believed, all those who responded to the call to repent, to change their mind about their sin themselves and their Savior, had all things in common. Uh, by the way, since we're at 238, which I know some people teach, to uh, say you have to be baptized by them to go to heaven, repent, and at least let each one of you be baptized for the permission of your sins, and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be good to go. Um, this is what that means. That's plural. All y'all, he's talking to thousands of people in Jerusalem, all y'all are called to repent, change your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior, for the forgiveness of 
and it's the plural again, y'all sins, all y'all sins. And then he switches from plural to singular. And then let each one of you as believers, as repentant, people put repentant faith in Christ, be baptized as a symbol of the fact you've trusted in him. So if you look at that, grammatically, the forgiveness of sins in Acts 2.38 is is linked to repentance, saving repentance, not to baptism. You repent, you change your mind and trust Christ as Savior, and that's how you receive forgiveness of sins. And then as a believer, you ought to be baptized. But that's an outward sign of an inner reality, okay? But let's keep going through Acts, and look how Luke looks like he's going out of his way to tell you metanaeo, changing your mind, is the same thing as believing in, in salvation context. Uh, Acts 3, 19, Peter again, therefore repent, so your sins will be wiped away. A couple of verses later, Luke says, all those who heard that message to repent, you know what they did, Anthony? They believed. You can't believe without repenting in the way that term is used in these kind of contexts. They're not two separate things. They're two aspects of the same thing. Acts 10, Peter is preaching to dirty Gentiles according to Jewish cootie rules, which were much pickier than God was. He tells these Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew first and submit to the law and submit to circumcision, and then you can believe and be saved. You can just believe and be saved right now. Everyone, including Gentiles, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Then in the next chapter, when some legalistic Jewish Christians say, Peter, didn't you tell him to obey the law? Because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And the way Gentiles get to salvation is they have to embrace the Jewish law, submit to ritual circumcision, and then they can believe in the Messiah and be saved. He said, no, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the Savior of the world, right? So Peter says, believe. Luke, when he records the debriefing that Peter's getting for telling Gentiles to believe, Peter says, look, they've, they've had the repentance that leads to life. This is the Apostle Paul now. All people everywhere should repent. Metanaeo, changed their mind about their sin, they got it. Stop redefining it or rationalizing, rationalizing it. And I'll feel a lot better in our culture, with our culture, when people start blushing again, when they admit to certain horrible things, including our president. Um, it just becomes a legal thing. Uh, all men everywhere, people should repent. Metanaeo, change their mind about their sin, their savior, and uh, their reckoning with God. And then four verses later, Luke says some men joined him and believed. He told them to repent. Luke says they believed. So which one did they do? When you savingly repent, you have believed. When you believe, you have savingly repented, right? Now, a really good passage on this from the Gospels, we've been looking at Acts, is um, in Mark. And let's hold your place in Matthew. Go to Mark. This reference that John the Baptist is arrested that Matthew makes this this is a big turning point in the ministry of Christ. And Mark, who can, abbreviates everything, he basically goes right to that. But he tells us in Mark 1, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And again, forgiveness of sins is connected to repentance, not to baptism. And repentance is changing your mind so you trust in Christ, right? But look at here. Go to Acts 19. Let's see what Paul says about John the Baptist's ministry. Okay, Dennis, watch this. The Gospels say uh, that John the Baptist said to repent, right? But look what Paul, who knows theology better than I do, if I can find Acts 19, 
Is that behind 15, 16? I told you when I was so, I was so old, uh, the Dead Sea was just sick when I was born. Also, my fingers are so dry, I can barely turn the pages anymore. But watch this, uh, Acts 19.4. Paul said to some folks who were confused about the difference between Old Testament and New Testament, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. A metanoia is the, is the uh, noun form of metanoia there. Telling the people to do what? It's the same thing. It's not two different things. It's not two related things. It's the same thing. It's two aspects, different sides of the coin, but just one coin there. So Mark 1.4, John is preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Paul tells you that means he was telling them to believe. And then in a passage like Mark 1.15, we've got, and by the way, go back, go back to Mark, I'm sorry. I want to show you this. You got to get to, you know, into four chapters in Matthew to see John the Baptist arrested. But you only have to go 14 verses into Mark because Mark shrinks, shrinks everything down. You know, he's writing, uh, to a bunch of Romans. They had shorter attention spans, I guess, right? But, uh, Mark 1.14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel. It's the same thing we just read. Slightly different words. Times fulfilled, kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Uh-oh. It is two things. It's gotta be. The word and in Greek is kai, and it can be addition. I have two sons, Jamie and Jonathan. Or it can be what's called ascensive, which, which is an equals mark. Repent. That is, believe in the gospel. When you believe in the gospel, you have repented by, def, by definition. Now, let me give you an illustration, and we'll move on with the text. Uh, I'm looking at Ron. If I wanted him to stand side by side with me, and it's always a great honor anytime I'm able to be in his immediate presence. I want you to know that. I could say, Ron, come over here. That's like saying, believe. Or I could say, hey, Ron, don't stay over there. That's all I got to say. The implication is come over here. Can he come over here and stay over there? Every time he comes here, he has not stayed over there. Every time he doesn't stay over there, he's come here. Or I could say, hey, don't stay over there. Come over here. Repent and be baptized and believe. It's the, that's the way it works, right? Believe on Christ is like coming over here. Repenting, don't stay over there is like repenting, changing your mind about your sin, yourself, the Savior. And don't stay over there, come over here is repent and believe. Come over here is believe. Don't stay over there is repent. They're the same thing. Every time he comes over here, he's not staying over here. You can't do one without the other. It's not separate steps. Or I can say both together, right? That's really important. That's worth the price of admission right there. Okay, it's, it's free to come in though. Oh, you know. Okay, let's go to verses 18 through 22. We're moving from Nazareth's loss, Capernaum's gain. Jesus will base the rest of his ministry, although he goes to Jerusalem three times a year at least, and the last trip is emphasized in all four Gospels. Um, we're going to now look at verses 18 through 22. Jesus calls specific believers. These guys are believers. How do we know that? You should know that already. I'll show you how you can just slam dunk that. And so many people, including people with big ministries, apparently don't know that because I totally missed the point here. Uh, verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, there's no lake in Nazareth. What's he doing? He's not in Nazareth anymore. He's on the banks at a fishing village called Capernaum. That's where he is. This is probably early one morning. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter. Uh, the guy's name is Simon. Somebody gave him a nickname. 
Who gave him the nickname Peter that means rough around the edges? Jesus, when did he give it? Before John was put in custody. Go back to John chapter 1. The gospel writers write this stuff assuming you're going to notice. They're not looking for space. They're not being paid by the word. The reason they emphasize after John was taken into custody, then Jesus calls these new believers to full-time capital discipleship is because uh, he wants you to know they're already believers because before John the Baptist was arrested, after Jesus was baptized and then submitted to uh, the enemy enticing him, we see, let's look at John 1 verse 29, uh, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him after the baptism, after the temptation. He's been gone for a couple of months. He comes back to where John is baptizing. And John the Baptist says, that's the king of the Messianic kingdom. He could have said that, and it's true. He doesn't say that. What does he say? The kingdom is not just eschatological, it's soteriological. That's the Lamb of God. That's the guy I've been telling you about. You need to repent. Change your mind. I know the culture says you can save yourself by being a good Jew. Ain't going to work. Change your thinking. Takes away the sin of the world. Drop down to verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This happens to be John and Andrew. And he looked at Jesus walking by and said, that's the Lamb of God. There he is again. He's going to be the issue and issue of eternal life as the sacrifice for redemption. But drop down to verse 40. And for our purposes, this is important. So John the Baptist is not arrested here. Am I right? Because he's talking to them. You see that? This is before John was arrested, right? You look like I just shot your dog. Okay, I'm going to say it again. When John the Baptist is saying, that's the Lamb of God, go get him, is he in jail? Say no. Good. So this is happening before what we're reading in Matthew. One of the two who heard John speak, what did John say? Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's going to make the sacrifice for sin. Was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So after they interacted uh Andrew and the John, as it turns out, the apostle, uh, after they broke contact with Jesus, he first found his own brother, Simon, which means listener, and said to him, we found the Messiah. We found the Lamb of God. Now, actually, he found you because you were he wasn't lost, but, uh, you know, uh, which translated means Christ. And he, Andrew, who's one of the guys who's going to be called a full-time capital D discipleship in our passage, right? He's already a believer when that happens. Brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, your name, with a smile on his face, he's saying, hey, your, your, your name's Listener? They call you Listener? Really? We know you're rough around the edges. I want to give you a nickname. We're going to call you Petros. We're going to call you Rocky. We're going to call you Cephas, um, uh, which is translated Peter. Okay? Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, uh, Go back to verse 12 again. After we know that John the Baptist has been arrested, he never gets out and eventually gets beheaded. So everything we just read in John 1 took place before that, months before this. Okay, These guys had been told by Jesus sometime after their trip to Jerusalem and back, he said, I'm going to come get you, and it could be at any moment for you to be full-time mentees, trainees, if you want to be. And I want you, you know, it's an invitation. And now this is a summons. They say, okay, you can come anytime you want to. And he comes on this particular morning and says, go. You know, this is the call you've been waiting for, right? Um, 
So they're in the middle of their, their work day, right? And we've got uh, two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. And again, that's Matthew telling you, this is the guy Jesus gave his nickname to before John the Baptist was in prison. So these guys are already believers. And Andrew's brother casting a net. That word for net is a particular Greek word that means a big circular net with small iron weights all around the margins. So you fling this thing out like a big frisbee. It hit the surface and would sink down and the perimeter would be sealed in the fairly shallows of the lake by the uh, the iron uh, pieces there all around the margin. And then you just kind of carefully collect the net and hopefully get 10s and 20s and maybe 100 fish. That'd be pretty good. 153 is the record, though. We know because uh, in John 21, uh, you know, Jesus miraculously lets them catch 153 fish. Now, you want to know what that really means, Ed? You want to know what that 153 really means? That's the number of nations in the UN right before the second coming. No. That's how many fish they caught, and it was probably a record. That's, that's what that means. That's how many fish they caught. Uh, literal interpretation will help you from being a heretic every single time. <laughs> you know? Uh, follow me just like I told you I was going to give you this call to be my mentee, my trainees, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left. They were ready to go. This was not a surprise. This was not a call to salvation. It's not how you get saved. I always thought as a young kid, that's the way it was kind of presented to us in Sunday school. These guys had never seen Jesus before, and that's the way we ought to be. We ought to have just blind faith. Anybody who comes in and says they're an apostle, just whatever they say, do it. I'm not going to do that. Christianity is not blind faith. It's not a leap into the dark. It's a walk into the light. These guys are already believers, right? And going down from there, we bump into James and John, and he gives them the same call. So, you know, putting that in context... Super important. These guys are believers when they're called. This is not a call to salvation. It's a call to special capital D discipleship on the glad path to capital A apostleship. So we're on the Sea of Galilee right there. We're not at the, at the uh, um, carpenter shop anymore. Sometimes you just find graphics when you're looking around the Internet that are so good you just got to share. Uh, there's a, there's a, a thing called the Jesus Trail, and, uh, you know, hey, would you come to Israel in May if I told you you could run the Jesus Trail? Okay. You, you can wake up one morning at five and, and run it. You know, this is a, it'd be a short run for David and Seth. You know, you go from Nazareth uh, up here to Capernaum, and it's just 18 miles. And it's downhill all the way. So that's one reason to come to Israel with us. Uh, but yeah, Zippori is what they called Sepphoris in the first century, and that's the city we talked about where Jesus would have done a lot of carpentry work. But I just love that graphic. But let's take some, show you some pictures from Capernaum. This is a real, real place. That's our uh, 2006 tour group, including how many TBFers can you pick? Who's the tallest one? Who's number two? That's Jamie, my first son. Who's number three? But number one in my heart, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, what's that? Duncan Bell. There's Homer. There's me. There's Candace. Those are real people, right? Now, if you've got a Flickr, you can find that picture. I took that. Somebody else took that picture. Come think of it. I didn't take that picture because I'm in it. Uh, but that gate we're standing in front of is right there as you walk in. And you park over here just off the screen. What's that flying saucer-like object? We saw that last week. That's a Roman Catholic church built over the top of Peter's house, or what's uh, considered to be Peter's house. And there's a late first century inscription that says this is Peter's house, so it probably really was Peter's house. But it kind of ruins the effect for me. I mean, you know, 
Why don't they just leave it alone? But yeah, you can actually you can actually walk in there and look around. But really, the gem of the site is a fourth century synagogue based built on the first century synagogue, um, and that's the picture I think we looked at last week. You see Ron there walking, right? But here's another shot of the, the site. They've done just minimal archaeology everywhere except uh, synagogue and Peter's house, but there's a lot more they could dig up. And we looked at that picture. Those are my two daughters-in-law. And where where that stone gets dark, that would have been the, the actual floor of the synagogue Jesus walked on. Now, you guys haven't seen this picture in a while, have you? That's Julie and and uh, Ron waiting for Asher and me to tell them what it all means. And here's Asher, our uh, Israeli uh, um, uh, ranger retiree from the army. And you can see some people. There's Homer. He always looks good. There's side of Pam's head. There's Debbie. And I'm taking that picture. But here's what they don't show you sometimes. That synagogue, which is now in ruins, would have looked like this. It was a substantial synagogue. And I'm not sure how scholars do this. They say that the uh, population of Capernaum in the first century was somewhere between 1,000 and 15,000. That's a pretty big gap, isn't it? I know they've got a lot more archaeology to do. But that's one of the pillars from the synagogue. And what do you see there? The star of David, yeah. So th- these apostles are already believers. These guys are believers when they're called. Uh, and they become, I'm going to call them today, capital D disciples on a glide path to become capital A apostles, right? And uh, you might not know this, but there are four places in the New Testament where you have lists of the 12 apostles. One's in Matthew, one's in Mark, one's in Luke. There isn't one in John, which means he doesn't want you to know there are 12 apostles. That's why he didn't tell you, right? You think that's true? He assumes you know. It just didn't fit his purposes, you know? And then Acts gives you another list. The guy we met as uh, Nathaniel is better known as Bartholomew. Some of these guys have multiple names, you know, like, uh, my, you know, my nickname is Slick, you know. The other one, <laughs> which is, uh, nobody's ever called me Slick. But here, here's the thing. According to Ephesians 2.20, uh, the prophets and the apostles are the, are the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ himself being a cornerstone. These guys have unique functions that are more strategic than anything Billy Graham has ever done, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, uh, Casa, uh, uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine, I should say. August, Geisler used to tell us, Augustine's a city in Florida, Augustine's the saint, you know. But you can list all your heroes from church history. The apostles trump all of them, uh, in part because they all are martyred for the faith, with one exception. It's interesting. The first apostle to be martyred is James, the brother of John. The last apostle to die is John. He suffered a lot of abuse. Uh, as you know, he was exiled on the island of Patmos, a Roman prison island, when he wrote the book of Revelation. But he was not actively crucified or stoned to death. But Simon Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword, Acts says. They take beheaded. I don't think that necessarily means beheaded. I think he was stabbed to death, but that's this graphic I got. Um, John was exiled of an old age. He was the last apostle to die. Matthew died a martyr in Ethiopia, according to church tradition. Bartholomew or Nathaniel was beaten and then crucified. Uh, they all get beaten, beaten before they're crucified. Philip crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Some say he went as far as India with the gospel. 
Simon the Zealot was crucified. James the Less, they call him. The other James, not the brother of John, was stoned to death. Thaddeus was stoned to death. It's also called uh, Judas the Greater. And then Judas Iscariot, of course, was a suicide. Uh, why would these guys, rather than just pulling rank, because they did, apostles were over the universal church. You know, as a pastor as, and as a member of the elder board, I have uh, delegated authority over this body of believers that's only as good as we're applying scripture. You know, that's it. That's all we've got. But the apostles were over the church, capital C church. You might say, well, they were lucky. I don't believe in luck. But they also paid the ultimate price. Why would they be given so much authority, and why would they be willing to die for this stuff if, if they made it all up? Because they knew. they had one, one of the marks of an apostle is they had seen the risen Christ, right? And the resurrection trumps all the world religions, all the world's philosophy of thought, and it's all about the risen Christ. When we say, because Christ died for your sins, you don't have to die in your sins, that's not the gospel. Because Christ died for your sins and rose again on the third day, you don't have to die. That's the gospel. The gospel is the fact Christ died for our sins and rose again. Because a dead Savior cannot get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can. Muhammad wasn't resurrected. Buddha wasn't resurrected. Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i faith, wasn't resurrected. Joseph Smith wasn't resurrected. Jesus was resurrected. They saw it. And these guys that look so wimpy uh, in the Gospels become lions because they dared to get Jesus in the center of their pie chart. And that's discipleship uh, for anybody. But I think they're in a special category, right? Let's look at the last couple of verses here. A general description of the great Galilean ministry. Jesus, during this phase of his ministry, the next year plus probably, was going throughout all Galilee. There are 300,000 people to reach, and they don't have Twitter or telephones. Teaching in their synagogues. Teaching. What, what do you think he's teaching? Entertainment Tonight? People Magazine? He's teaching the Torah. He's teaching the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, we saw him teaching in Nazareth. He reads Isaiah 61.1, says, that's me. Okay, here's what it means. Here's what it says. Here, here's what it means, right? So he's teaching the scripture, verse by verse. And when you look at his ministry of teaching, places like Matthew 22, he makes big deals about little words, about one little word, you know. He's going throughout Galilee, teaching their synagogues on Sabbath day, and the other side of the week, proclaiming. Caruso means to preach, to pro- proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to repent, to, to repent, to believe, and also to validate his unique claims healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness or malady among the people. And the news about him during this great Galilean ministry spread throughout not just Galilee, but into the Gentile region due north Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from all kinds of different problems, aches and pains, diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. He didn't make saving faith a requirement for physical healing, but he's doing physical healing to confirm his claims to be the exclusive issue an issuer of eternal life. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities on the, mainly on the other side of the Jordan, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So notice, the great Galilee ministry is summarized by three ideas here. Jesus is teaching in the synagogues, reading, interpreting, and applying the Old Testament scriptures. He's proclaiming the good news that he's the Messiah. People should repent and believe in him. And uh, he's healing, doing these 
miracles to confirm uh, the the accuracy of his claims about himself. Now, the good news is we've got large crowds. The bad news is the large crowds demand that the leaders in the home office in Jerusalem have to have a position on Jesus. He's got he's too much of a phenomenon for their, them to ignore. They'd prefer to ignore him because he doesn't fit in their system, as you saw in uh, harsh house cleaning, right? So as we're going to see, the life of Christ the ministry of Christ begins with this Galilean ministry where he's doing big miracles, trying to contact as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. But once they get to this tipping point, I call this the Pike Peak, Pike's Peak of the ministry of Christ, O and P, O stands for opposition offered. The leaders, after observing him and trying to decide what to do with him, bow down and worship him as God and Messiah, don't they? What do they do? They have to explain him away. They've got a business to operate here, and he doesn't fit into their business plan. So what do they do? Do they deny he's doing miracles? They can't deny he's doing miracles. Everybody in, in the nation is seeing him do the miracles. They, those really happen, right? Disciples didn't make that up later. They have to impugn the source. And so they explain Jesus away by saying he's a satanically possessed false prophet. So of course he does miracles, but that's all satanic miracles. That's the unpardonable sin, by the way. And uh, after that happens, slowly, incrementally, Jesus stops trying to proclaim to the nation because now every miracle he does will be used against him at his trial because all that's satanic, right? That's what they're saying. And he begins to prepare the disciples. And he doesn't talk about the crucifixion in specific terms until after that happens. And then almost immediately he tells the guys, get ready because the, these guys are going to lynch me and then you're going to have to pick up the slack. So take this to heart. All believers in Christ are called to be his disciples. Matthew 28 says, make disciples of all nations. That's the one command in the Great Commission, right? But capital D disciples, like Peter, James, and John here, are unique. And they eventually become full bore capital A apostles. So let's do it this way. We're going to have some audience participation in the last three minutes. While each of us is important to God, especially put your name in the blank. While each one of us is important to God, especially Angie Miller or Jenny Heath or Betty Donica or Dale Corbin. Uh, while each one of us is important to God, including you, the original capital D disciples slash apostles have a special function and a unique contribution and they're more strategic than you are in the, in the overall work of the capital C church. That What that means is, take your humble pill here, none of us, not even, and I thought, who's the greatest names I could think of? Well, Ron Miller, he immediately came to mind. James Mitchell was close. Me, obviously. Uh, David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, tongue-in-cheek, folks. Um, you can't tell that on the, on the, uh, video, uh, on the audio, but trust me, I, I don't take that, I don't think I'm in that category. I know I'm not in Ron's category. He tells me that all the time. Uh, not even your favorite major media preacher, pastor, Bible teacher, or parachurch guru are in the same category as the capital D apostles slash capital D disciples. But all of us, put your name in the blank one last time, Phyllis Davis, Anthony Foreman, are called to be disciples. And believers, this is normative, okay? I, I beseech you by the mercies of God, not your believers, to live your life a living sacrifice, Right? And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What are you going to use to renew renew your mind, transform your mind? Scripture, right? 
That's the normative Christian life. That's a Christian walk. That's a Christian limp. A lot of American Christians think they live their Christian life on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays, you know, if they have Wednesday night church. But Jesus says the Lordship applies to everything, including prom night, including out-of-town work trips. Uh, even after you make that 97 on that quiz on Tuesday, the test on Tuesday, or even if it's a 27, right? Lordship of Christ applies. That's a limp. You're doing Jesus no favors there. That's logical. That's illogical. And I'll close with this. You know, I say this from time to time. If every other believer at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship was exactly like you in your attendance patterns, in your giving habits, in your involvement, in your attitude, what kind of shape would we be in? Every human church has a core of really committed people who are really excited about discipleship, you know, like Ray and, and uh, Clay. You know, the other ones I'm not sure about, but Ray and Clay, I know. You guys are good to go. Uh, then you've got people who are convinced, they're really believers, and they're convinced this is a legit church, but they're still kind of picking and choosing, kind of not in the core, uh, kind of second or third stringers, you know, when they could be first stringers. Then you've got people in the fringes, but may not even be believers yet. Uh, we had Bob Shallot in a holding pattern as, as a casual member, of, uh, uh, participant in this church for a long time before he came to faith. But what better place for him to be on Sunday mornings, Right? And God sovereignly called him when he wanted to. But I've always said, for me, I'm more interested in church health than church growth, because I think if we're, if you've got church health, the growth will come according to God's purposes for you. But the bigger a percentage of your church, local church that's made up of that category, the bigger that is, a bigger percentage, the healthier your church will be. So if you're a casual TBFer, move toward the center, baby. There's room for one more. If you're convinced but still kind of picking and choosing, embrace this thing, man. Uh, help us make it better. And uh, But even as you do that, you're not in the same category as the capital D disciples, capital A apostles. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. You call each one of us to full-time discipleship, and yet we're not on the same par as the apostles. The disciples. And yet, uh, it's not just for James, who's a, a, a very gifted youth minister, or for Dale, who's a very consistent elder. It's for every believer in this room who's trusted, dared to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for those of us like Dale, who's an elder, or James, who's on staff of this church, or me, who's the pastor of the church, Help us to realize this is not something we just go through the motions because we show up for services and lead music or we do a Bible study and we have a PowerPoint. Uh, this is has to do at the depth of our heart, having uh, be centered on Christ, being abiding in Christ, where that He literally is the center of our pie chart, and all of us uh, can refine that. And I pray that we'd be excited about doing that. I thank you for each one who's here. I thank you for the clarity of Scripture. You're telling us this is happening after John the Baptist had been arrested, after these guys have heard and believed the gospel. Forgive us for making discipleship passages all about how to become a believer. Um, we do this very often, and we really confuse people. We make Christianity look more like Judaism or Hinduism than what it really is, where salvation is of the Lord. It's not something we do for you. It's something you do for us. And I pray that uh, you just kind of clean out the jets of our categories here as we look at a passage like this. I know a few people here are under intense pressure, 
And one reason they're here is to reconnect and to really kind of seek your will and to do it. And I pray that not just by something I said today, but maybe uh, something that's said during the fellowship time before or after this uh, message or in the sharing time or in the Sunday school class, something that will be said by somebody that can really help uh, to empower these folks to, to hear your word and to know your will. As We pray that for all of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.